Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 25. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Amen. The pandemic has made us ask all kinds of questions on all kinds of topics that we had just never thought about before. So, for example, when suddenly overnight we were all told we couldn't go to work, companies had to figure out how on earth do we run a business like this? Now, in the old days, I suppose it was simple enough. You probably needed an office building for your workers, and if you sold products, I guess you needed a warehouse to store them in. And if you sold stuff, I guess you needed shops to sell them in. Remember those things? Shops? Those funny buildings on high streets that we all used to go to. But then overnight, businesses had to reinvent themselves. They asked questions like, what is a business anyway? Does it really need a building? Do the staff even need to meet? Do they even need to live in the same country? Because these days, with a laptop... And an internet connection, people are running companies and managing teams and getting their products to market online without ever meeting each other. Now, that change was happening already, of course, but the pandemic has sped it up enormously. Why do I mention that? Well, here's the thing. The pandemic has caused lots of people to ask similar questions about the church. We too were forced to go online for a season. We too had to radically rethink how on earth to be a church, how to maintain fellowship and preach God's word and do discipleship and evangelism and all the rest of it. But now lots of people are asking, well, are these changes permanent? And what is a church anyway? Do we all need to live in the same place? Can we just not meet online? And 
do I even need to belong to just one congregation? Why can't I just stay at home and, and browse the sermons from all around the world, from the world's best preachers? You're not going to get that here today, I can tell you. I reckon COVID has revealed to us that we are not as clear on all these kinds of questions as maybe we should be. And so hopefully right on cue, here is this new series. We are doing four weeks on the church. It's called Church, Fed, Led, Gathered, Sent. And today we're focusing on the first part of that. Today's question is, what is the church and how is it fed Last word of introduction before we get going. You'll have noticed that this is what we might call a topical series. Now that is a bit different to what we do normally here. Usually we pick a book of the Bible and we just work our way through it Sunday by Sunday. And, and we do that because, well, that's how God gave us his word in individual books like Mark that we're studying in the evening at the minute or Colossians or Genesis or, or whatever. But just occasionally it's worth just standing back and saying, well, okay, what does the whole Bible say about this or that particular subject. Let's begin to put the pieces together, and that's exactly what we're doing today. Enough waffle. Let's roll. Question one and point one. What is the church? It's kind of a fundamental question, right? You may well say that you're part of a church. You might have said this morning, I'm going to church, or I'm going to gather with the church. We say these sort of things all the time. But if someone said to you, what exactly is the church? I wonder what you would say. Well, here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a summary of Bible teaching, here's how that draws together an answer to that question. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is several hundred years old, so you need to bear with the old language, but there's lots of gold buried in there. Also, a little aside, you might have noticed that the confession uses this language of the visible and the invisible church. I had a whole section in this sermon about that. I've cut it. I'm going to put a blog post up that week, this week on that topic because we don't have time just now. So back to our main question, what is the church? Well, if I was going to give you one word to sum up what the church is, I would give you the word union. Union. That the church is about being united or connected in a whole bunch of different ways. So first of all, this is letter A on your sheet. The church is those people who are united to Jesus. We might say they have union with Christ. If it feels like a lot of religious jargon to you, don't worry. Hopefully at a moment it'll be clear. Union with Christ is sometimes in the Bible called being in Christ or joined to Christ it's actually the most common way in the New Testament of describing what a Christian is so for example 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17 whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit or 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 therefore if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come the point is if you're a Christian you are in Jesus, as it were, and he is in you. In other words, you are as closely connected to him 
as you could possibly be. Remember, our Christian faith is all about Jesus and what he's done for us, not what we've done to earn his favor. Jesus came to live and to die in our place, to pay for our sins so we could be forgiven and connected to God. I love the word humility that Sue used in her prayers. The Christian faith ultimately is a humble faith. We're saying to God, there's nothing I can do to earn your favor or or, or win your grace. It's all about what you've done for me. So a Christian is someone connected to Jesus, and that's why you get these uh, wonderful images in the New Testament to describe the church, like things like Jesus is the head and we are the body, or Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. The church is those people who've trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and as a result, you are connected to him, tied to him, bound to him, united to him. Isn't that amazing? But also, letter B, it's about union with each other. So listen to this from Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is speaking to a bunch of Christians, some of whom are Jews and some of whom are Gentiles. And those were probably the two most hostile groups in the ancient world when this was written. And the question is, what happens when people from these two kind of hostile groups both become Christians and are both united to Christ? Here's what he says, Ephesians 2.14. For Jesus himself is our peace, who made these two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. You see the point? The church is people who are united to Jesus, yes. But more than that, the church is people who are united to each other. Now that has its joys and its challenges. And we'll see more on that in later weeks. For now, let me take a moment to knock a very bad idea very hard on the head. In our modern individualistic world, you find plenty of people who think it's possible to be a Christian, but not really have anything to do with a local church. In other words, they think they can be united to Jesus without being united to Jesus' people. And let me say very clearly, you will just not find that idea anywhere in the Bible. In fact, quite the opposite. Being united to Jesus means being united to his people in a local congregation of his church. Now, maybe there's a slightly more subtle form of that bad idea in our post-COVID world. Maybe we're saying, oh, I I don't reject the church. I, I just watch online. And I've actually found a church I really like. I mean, it's 200 miles away, but I do watch every week. I really like the preacher. Now, look, we're we're still emerging from COVID. It's a complex world at the moment. And in fact, there are some people at the moment in exceptional circumstances who don't have a local church to go to. For example, the other week, uh, and this is absolutely true, we had a family watching our service from rural Pakistan where there was no church to go to. So there are exceptions, but the rule is this. Those united to Jesus are united to the local church. And let me say to those of you who I know are watching this broadcast from other parts of the country today, 
we really hope what we do here is a blessing to you. And we really hope that ultimately you'll stop watching. Not because we don't love you, we love having you with us, but ultimately we want you to belong in person to a Bible teaching church in your own locality. Because being united by faith to Jesus always leads to being united to a local body of believers. If you don't believe me yet, just listen to this from Acts chapter 2 verse 41. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. You might know the story. Anyway, uh, he's, uh, he's preaching and a bunch of people come to faith in Jesus. It's amazing. And then here's what, uh, Peter, uh, here's what uh, uh, Luke says. He's narrating this. He says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Do you see they believed and they were baptized and they were added to the number of the church. All three of those things come together. You can't have any one of them without the others. In fact, the, the Westminster Confession that I mentioned earlier goes to, so far as to say that out of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And that's not because we, the church, or me, or the elders, have the power to save people. Of course we don't. We know that only Jesus, through his gospel, can do that. But the question is, well, where is the gospel preached? Where are disciples made? Where, where are disciples taught and helped and shaped and grown the answer is always in in the bible it's in the community of the local church so the church is people who have union with jesus and union with each other but also here's letter c union with the global church here's where it gets really cool our congregation is just a little pocket we are one tiny corner of the global church. Now we sometimes call that the universal church or the Catholic church. Small c, Catholic just means universal. People in every place who trust in Jesus are part of the same family. And maybe you've even experienced this uh, yourselves. Maybe you've gone somewhere else, somewhere completely new, and you've met someone completely new from a completely different background and culture and place and yet instantly you have this sense of connection with them. And the reason is because you have the most important thing in, in common. You, you both know and follow Jesus. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of the biggest global movement in history. You thought this was a small gig, but it's not. The church is those who have union with Christ, union with each other, and union, this amazing connection with the global church. But last, before we move on, union also, letter D, with the historic church. You're probably wondering when we were going to get to our readings from Hebrews. Here we go. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come, that is, as you came to Jesus, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That might seem a little complicated. It's really pretty simple. As we come to faith in God, we come to be part of a community that spans not just 
all around the world, but also all down the ages. Hebrews also says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The question is, who is this great cloud of witnesses? Well, the answer is, it's the saints of old. And when the Bible uses that word saints, it just means Christians. Now, in Hebrews particularly, it's Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. Hebrews gives a whole list of these famous characters from the scriptures and shows how how their faithfulness to, to God in the past is a great example and a spur to us to do the same today. We are part of the same family of faith as them. The example of their lives can spur us on. Now, we need to be careful about our relationship with them, with the saints of old. We we don't pray to them or through them, because in the Bible, prayer is only ever given to God, but we are connected with them. It's good for us to know something about their lives, because their lives of faith can inspire us and spur us on today. There's that lovely line, isn't there, in that Getty song, as saints of old still line the way retelling triumphs of his grace we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand with them in glory and amazing so the church is those who are united to Christ united to other believers and so even though technology has been a brilliant servant to us through the pandemic can you see why in the long term a kind of digital only church is just not an option for us and I'm speaking now not so much to those who are watching far away but but to those nearby maybe even here in Burkhead in the long term a digital only church can't be an option for us because real life on life in-person connections are at the heart of what the church is and we need that for discipleship and fellowship and evangelism in-person, real-life stuff. It's not just what the church does. It's deeper than that. It's actually who we are. Because we're about connection. We're about union with Christ and with each other. Anyway, secondly, and honestly, much more briefly, how is the church fed? Might seem a strange way of putting it. What I mean is, how is the church sustained? What what feeds it? What helps it? What grows it? Two answers here. Here's number one, letter A. First, by the word. By the word of God, the Bible. The obvious question is, well, if we want to learn more about God, how can we do that? If we want to know him, how can we know him? Well, unless we want to guess, which I would suggest is not a good idea, The answer, of course, is we can only know God through what he's revealed. Now, just as you can tell a certain amount by an artist by looking at their paintings, in my case, you could tell that I wasn't a good artist at all, but in the same way, we can know something about God just by looking at the world he's made. This is Psalm 19 and Romans 1, if you want to look it up later. But really, to know him properly, to know him more specifically, and certainly to know what God requires of us, We need more than that. We need God to reveal himself. And that is exactly what God has said he has done through this book that you are holding in your hands. 
And so how precious is this book that you have in your hands? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's you, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says this, His, that's God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. And where does that knowledge come from? From God's word, from the Bible. And not only is this book sufficient, it's also effective. It's also powerful. I'm sure you know these words from Isaiah chapter 55, just beautiful poetry. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, even my buddlier, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word. It goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire. And for all those reasons, that the, the word of God, the Bible, is at the center of our life as a church and of our lives as individual Christians. Not because we worship the Bible, but because through the Bible we get to know God, and others can too. It also means we do not get to pick which parts of Scripture to to believe or to teach. In fact, those parts we find most difficult may well be the bits we need to hear most of all, because they probably correct our blind spots about God and his gospel. And we encourage our whole church family to engage in God's word in at least three ways. Through Sunday preaching like this in the morning and evening. Through small group discussion. Our small groups are about to restart. And through your own regular Bible reading. The church is fed by God's word. But also lastly, through the sacraments. Now again, maybe you're thinking, what more religious jargon? What does that mean? Well, the sacrament just means something that is a physical sign given to us by God that points us to Jesus and the benefits he brings. Physical sign given by God that points us to Jesus. And only two things in the Bible fit that description. That is baptism and the Lord's Supper, or sometimes called communion. We often say, don't we, that a picture speaks a thousand words. We might add that there are times in life where what we want to communicate is best said, not in words, but in some physical gesture, like a handshake or a hug or a hand on the shoulder. Why? Well, because we're physical people. We're not just kind of disembodied brains. And so God in his kindness has given us these things, these physical signs which which point to and which help us to reflect on it and to remember Jesus and all he's done. And since we're going to be sharing it in a moment, I'm going to focus today not so much on baptism, but on the Lord's Supper. And to help us do that for the last couple of minutes, I'm just going to read some verses from 1 Corinthians 11. And then from those verses, I'm going to walk us through what happens as we share bread and wine together. So the Apostle Paul writes this. You'll know these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So when we share communion, here are six things that do happen, that must happen. Here's the first, self-examination. Paul said everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat and drink. We do need to look seriously at our hearts. This is an opportunity to consider our lives, to reflect on our sin before a holy God. But also, lest we think this is a meal for people who are pure and perfect, by the way, it isn't, and if it was, there would be no participants. So as we reflect on our sin, we look again to the cross. As we examine our hearts, we don't find any life or hope there. It should make us look to Jesus, who went to the cross to pay for our sin. Self-examination. Next, there's Jesus' invitation. Jesus says to us, as it were, as we take the bread, he says, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And when we see the wine, it's as if Jesus says to us, drink this in remembrance of me. Now, of course, the wine and the the bread are not literally the body and blood of Jesus. Just as when Jesus said, I am the gate or I am the true vine, he's speaking metaphorically. But the invitation to come is very real. The theologian Donald MacLeod, a good free church name, puts it this way. He says, the sacrament is saying both that Christ has given himself for us and that we must take him for ourselves. It's as if God is standing there at the table saying to us very directly, take, eat. So self-examination, Jesus' invitation. Thirdly, thankful celebration. I couldn't quite make them all rhyme, but I did my best. Communion is sometimes called Eucharist. And again, that word literally just means thanksgiving, which of course is highly appropriate. And in some ways, bread and wine, I suppose, represent just all the gifts of God that he gives us in creation, right? The, the daily bread with which he feeds us. But of course, most especially, they point to Jesus and to the cross. And when we take bread and wine, we are saying, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Next, inner strengthening of our faith. Taking bread and wine is really, I suppose, like a visual way of just preaching the gospel to yourself. And so all the benefits of communion, not just the benefits of the gospel, assurance of God's love and grace, the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has won for us. And so as we take these things, we are strengthened in our faith. And Jesus is here with us by his spirit as we do it. Self-examination, Jesus' invitation, thankful celebration, inner strengthening, next perpetual commemoration 
Jesus said, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The fact is, we are astonishingly forgetful. History and even church history shows that we easily forget things and get our priorities all wrong. And so can you see how wise it is of God to give us this physical thing that we must keep on doing and doing and doing so that we keep the main thing the main thing. So we keep the cross of Jesus right at the heart of our faith where it should be. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now the Bible doesn't give us a specific formula for how often we should have the Lord's Supper. It actually seems like the early church celebrated it not just every Lord's Day, but maybe even every day. And certainly my own view is that it should, it should be a much more regular part of our normal worship than perhaps it's been. Lastly, visual proclamation. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, said Jesus, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in communion, we don't just remember Jesus' death for us, that's true, but more than that, it's like we announce it. It's like we proclaim it. We put it on display for everyone else to see. The meal is a picture that proclaims a message. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus will come again. And we do eat this meal until he comes, which I suppose is a reminder that that in the plan of God, the only thing left to happen is for Jesus to return and wrap up history and take his people to be with him forever. This is a big visual public sign. So maybe we should have done this in the community garden. Last Sunday, it would have been even more public. But I suppose at least by broadcasting online to the world. But it's also a visual sign, here's the last thought, within our building here today. Because if you're not yet a Christian... Again, as I always say, you are so welcome. We love to have you with us. But if you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure that the Bible would encourage you not to take communion just yet, but as you sit there and don't take it, it's a good opportunity, I suppose, to ask, why? Why not? Why am I out and not in? Why would I not want the blessings and benefits of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life? Peace of heart and mind. So folks, the church is those people who are united by faith to Jesus and united as a family together. We are a people who is sustained and grown and built by the word that God has spoken and the sacraments that God has given. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. Thank you that you speak to us too through these visual signs of bread and wine. We pray, Lord, in a moment as we take them, they, they would be a blessing to us, a deep reminder of the gospel that strengthens our faith and fills us with joy. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.